Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining me on the PCICS Challenging Cases podcast, where each episode we discuss an interesting and challenging case with the providers from the institutions where they took place. Since this is our first episode, let me give you a little background. PCICS stands for the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society, which is made up of healthcare professionals dedicated to promoting scientific inquiry, acquiring knowledge, and improving practice for our critically ill pediatric patients with congenital and acquired heart disease. You can find more information or become a member at PCICS.org. Now, I'm David Werho, and I'll be your host this time. I'm currently finishing up my training in pediatric cardiac critical care at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford, which is where our first case took place. This week, we will discuss a pericorporeal support device used to bridge a patient with pulmonary hypertension and RV failure to lung transplant. Joining me this week to present the case, one of our cardiac ICU nurse practitioners, Monica Mafla, and the director of our ECMO program and one of our cardiac intensivists, Wamzi Yarlagata. Now, before we start, let me mention that we have no disclosures, and PCICS does not endorse the specific views of our guests, and pretty much everything we're going to discuss is going to be off-label. Tell me a little bit about your patient. How did he present? Yeah, so this was a 13-year-old male um, who presented to an outside hospital um, with uh, signs of pulmonary hypertension. He underwent a cath at that time and was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension and found to have a mean PA pressure of 58 millimeters of mercury and a PVR index of 17 wood units. At that time, he was started on IV troprostanil. He was managed as an outpatient uh, for a few years and then developed worsening disease, at which time he presented with um, symptoms of right heart failure and was recapped and found to have a mean PA pressure of 80 that was up from 58 and a PVR of 22 wood units, which was up from 17. At that time, he was transitioned from IV triprostanil to epiprostanil arginine and started on oxygen at home for his home therapy. Um, he became progressively symptomatic over the next year and a half, um, developed fatigue, anorexia, more evidence of right heart failure, he had developed evidence of low output, and he developed hemoptysis, requiring many recurrent hospitalizations, and then eventually was transferred down here to Lucille Packard. And tell me a little bit about how his symptoms progressed over that time, and sort of what was the discussion about when he would be appropriate for transplant? Yeah, so when he arrived here on triple vasodilatory therapy with ibuprostenol, bosentin, and tildalafil, and even despite that, he had very large evidence of right heart failure with significant ascites, pedal edema. By echo, his right heart function was um, under pressure with an RV pressure measured at suprasystemic um, RV pressures. And um, he developed new onset uh, supraventricular tachycardia, um, likely from his right atrial stretch from the right heart failure. He also had um, thrombocytopenia. Um, and as time went on, when he initially was presented, we were able to manage him on a little bit of positive inotropy by adding dopamine. Um, I, I didn't mention before, but he had been um, transferred over on milrinone therapy. So we continued his milrinone, we added in dopamine, and then we, um, to increase his afterload and add in vasopressin um, to help shift his intraventricular septum because his RV was so dilated and bowing into the left that we thought that we could um, add that in and, and that would help um, get him more 
cardiac output, which it did work for a little bit of time. Um, and then his supraventricular tachycardias got even worse. He developed um, hemoptysis uh, more frequently and worsening just physical symptoms and inability to uh, mobilize um, that made him made his risk for mortality uh, imminent. And um, was he listed for lung transplant early on in that admission, or was it something that we felt he was too ill at that time? Um, at the time of admission, a rapid lung transplant evaluation um, was done, and he was listed for transplant um, on, on admission to our hospital. And then over the course of that admission, it sounds like his symptoms worsened and his right heart failure worsened despite maximizing his medical therapy. Is that correct? Exactly. At what point did he seem to be too ill to continue without some sort of advanced support strategy? Uh, so he had been in our institution for several weeks, even a month, and he had been transferred to uh, the wards and was doing well. And it was when he um, developed a um, persistent SVT um, that became refractory to any medications and with a recurrent hemoptysis. Um, those signs were telling us that um, if we didn't intervene, he would not make it to his lung transplant. Okay, and at that point, that's when uh, you started having discussions about what were other options to bridge him to lung transplant? Correct. We had had other discussions on his admission when we didn't think his medical therapy uh, would work, but um, you know there had been discussions on creating an approach to mechanical support without using ECMO itself. Um, to bridge him, but at that time, um, as I mentioned before, he did well with medical therapy. Um, so we reopened that discussion um, with our surgeons, with our PH team, our lung transplant team, and our cardiology team, and uh, discussed uh, the therapy that we ended up um, intervening with. Talk to me a little bit about that, that discussion, um, with the other option obviously being VA ECMO, since he had RV failure and severe PH. Um, and then talking about this novel strategy. How did we go down that road? Well, we knew that putting him on VA ECMO um, in a patient with pulmonary hypertension does not have good outcomes. And the other part being that we were not sure how long he was going to have to wait, given he was already very cachectic and um, debilitated, that he would not be able to uh, mobilize or rehabilitate while waiting for his lung transplant. So we started thinking about this therapy where we would use a quadrox membrane and place it in his pulmonary artery um, to decompress his right heart and then deliver it back to his left atrium um, to supply his cardiac output. And that with that therapy in place, we would be able to um, mobilize him more and use approach a surgical approach uh, using Berlin heart cannulas um, coming out of his chest that would allow him to be more mobile like we do with our other uh, mechanical support patients. Well, that's really interesting. The thought of offloading his right heart by using a paracorporeal device while still having him be able to rehabilitate, be extubated, those types of things. We were hoping to use a device that would not keep him um, tied to the bed, that would allow him to mobilize like you, like you referred to, and that would not have a significant risk for clotting with less tubing, and that our nurses would be able to support here in the ICU. In determining the type of support, our perfusion team and our surgical team and our ECMO team combined decided to put together something using various mechanical support that we use, including Berlin heart cannulas, quadrox membrane, and the transducers for that. 
And as far as the duration of support that you guys were anticipating, um, what was the discussion about how long we thought that this device would last, how often it might need to be changed out, those types of things? Yeah, so we thought that we could manage this the same way that we manage, one, our ECMO circuits, and two, our Berlin hearts. Um, and so this was a novel approach, so we weren't exactly positive on how long that we would have this device for, but we did know that the, the membrane itself could be changed out, the oxygenator, um, and that the cannulas themselves, we would um, proceed with our anticoagulation plan like we, we already have in place protocols for um, our mechanical assist device. So what kinds of discussions did you have with the nursing staff and the perfusionists about getting them on board? Um, so yes, obviously this takes a lot of um, effort on the nursing side because we need to get nurses trained on this device. Um, however, it was relatively easy to get nursing buy-in because we, we already use a Quadrox membrane and basically um, we were using the same thing that our ECMO nurses use for VA ECMO. We were just taking out uh, the actual, um, you know, pump, centrifugal pump device. Um, however, we did have that on standby, so our thoughts were that if he could not maintain his own cardiac output, we would put that in, and then it would just be like a VA, VA ECMO circuit coming out of the chest. Um, fortunately, we did not need to use that and just had our membrane, our oxygenator, um, and the nurses were very comfortable using this device um, and its appropriate transducers, and so it was um, relatively easy to keep the nurses well supported on this. The perfusionists um, were very willing to jump in and help figure out a strategy with the surgeon as they always are. They're very helpful with that. And so how much of the cardiac output were you able to augment by offloading the RV? How much were you able to flow through the membrane? Um, yeah, so we, we ended up putting the cannulas once we were in the chest through the right atrial appendage and then um, tunneling it across to the left atrium because we were unable to access the left atrium and then the other one to the pulmonary artery like I had mentioned before. After the procedure, our filling pressures came down on the right to a mean um, RA pressure of 11 and our LA pressure mean was 6. At that time, the patient was contributing his own cardiac output and the blood flow through the device was approximately 3.5 liters per minute, giving him a cardiac index of 2.2 liters per minute. Um, his post-bypass echo uh, showed that his RV pressure um, was approximately 80 plus the right atrium um, being 11. Um, with the systolic blood pressure in the 70s, so it was still um, super systemic, um, but it was improved from his pre-op. Did the RV look happier after the device went in? Did the RV function improve after the device? Uh, the squeeze itself on initial echo um, was not significantly improved, but over the course of the first couple of post-op days, it did start to improve, and the RV pressure itself came to less than um, systemic. And did you continue all the pulmonary vasodilator therapies that he was on pre-device? We did. We left all of his um, pulmonary vasodilator therapies in place. And as an intensivist, one of the scariest things for us is inducing or sedating children like this with RV failure and pulmonary hypertension. But obviously he would have to be intubated in order for them to do the cannulation and open his chest. How did we think about the strategy for sedation? Yes, our anesthesia team was very much involved in this in, in induction for this procedure as it was the most high-risk induction um, that we see. 
The thoughts from anesthesia were to induce bypass prior to induction, um, given the high likelihood of acute RV failure. Uh, therefore, the patient was given a regional nerve block and placed on percutaneous VA ECMO prior to intubation, and which resulted in an uneventful induction and sternotomy and transition to central bypass cannulation. And for the anticoagulation strategy after device placement, uh, it sounds like you used the strategy that was already in place, uh, the protocol for your other mechanical support devices? Correct. We, we decided to use the modified ECMO parameters that we had in place at the time. Given our frequency of using mechanical long-term mechanical support devices, we typically hold anticoagulation for several days post-op while bleeding is controlled, and then start heparin infusions, and that's the same strategy we used with this patient. And talk to me about his post-operative course. How did that go? As I mentioned previously, he had improving RV and LV function by echo, um, and he was eventually able to be extubated on post-op day five and then began to mobilize on post-op day six, um, first dangling with the, the help of our um, physical therapy and occupational therapy teams at the bedside um, with the device. Um, and eventually getting out of bed. And tell me about his outcome. How long did he have to wait for a transplant? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, we started extubating him and then mobilizing him, and then he ended up, fortunately for him, getting an offer for transplant on his post-op day nine from his device, and he survived his hospitalization till discharge um, and is still actually out there doing great now, almost two years from lung transplant. That's a great story. It's awesome to hear how how you can use this to definitely save somebody's life. Yes, it was a great um, collaborative effort by our entire ICU team, our surgical team, our perfusion and ECMO teams, our surgeons, our PH team, our lung transplant team, and our nursing team, and our anesthesia team, of course. We really couldn't have done this and had a successful outcome without all working together um, to get the patient the best possible care that he deserved. And what words of wisdom would you give to any other institutions that are thinking about potentially using this, uh, this strategy with the quadrox membrane for pericorporeal support? I would say getting um, this collaborative approach together, talking it through with all members of the team, including nursing, um, is really the most important thing. Um, and using the resources that you have available in your institution with the things that you're um, already doing there would really help benefit patients um, needing these things. We're looking forward to the next time that we can do this type of um, approach um, to assist another patient who has the same needs reach a successful lung transplant. Thank you so much. It was really great talking to you. You too, David. Thank you. And so, Wamsi, before we decided to do this, uh, what what discussions were had with other institutions that had similar experience or with the adult hospital? Uh, there is actually a vast experience with using a pericorporeal device for the support of the right heart in preparation for lung transplantation. Um, we ended up discussing with our colleagues uh, Sick Kids of Toronto and went through some of their experience with using the device both perioperative post-operative and as they transition to an acute care ward. They've had a really excellent experience there and they've really made a difference in our field. 
both by being available for talking with us and also by the amount that they've published. What it's really shown is that this is a viable option for patients that you would consider either giving them a short-term ECMO run and then watch them deteriorate and not be suitable lung transplant candidates or patients that you would just say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can offer. This particular patient was deteriorating in front of us and um, we didn't have a way to turn that around with our current medical therapies. What we did was we decided there is another way to do this and even though we have never accomplished something like that before and we didn't have a team that was prepared for it, we didn't have education in place to make it happen, we decided none of that really mattered. What we really found is that if you have a team of providers and nurses and RTs and a multidisciplinary group that is really interested in doing something cutting edge and putting in the extra effort, you can make it happen. It was a lot easier knowing that other places were able to do this before us. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for joining us for this first episode. Please be sure to look out for our next episode next month here on iTunes or through the PCICS website at pcics.org. The song I Don't Know by Grace was used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license.